It's Muppeturgy, with a very special episode about the Danny Kay episode of The Muppet Show, featuring our own very special guest star, Noah Diamond. Hey everyone, welcome back. So glad you're here, despite our new schedule where it's a little unpredictable, but it will be predictable real soon, not, we promise. It's totally predictable now. This is what we fixed. It's not, though, because there's all these holidays. Every two weeks screw- on Thursday, except on a holiday. We're a disaster right. bisexual podcast now. That's... <laughs> Just like Danny Kay. <laughs> Just like Danny Kay. He was a Indeed. podcast. Anyway, I'm David Levy. Here today with me are Christy Bauer, Michal Richardson, and Adam Grossworth. And our aforementioned very special guest star, Noah Diamond. Hey, Noah. Hey, hey. thanks for having me on. I'm a longtime listener, first time caller. Glad to have you here. Noah Diamond is a writer, performer, and designer based in New York City. Closely associated with the Marx Brothers, he reconstructed their lost musical, I'll Say She Is, and played the role of Groucho in its first ever revival. He wrote the book, Give Me a Thrill, about the show's history, and is a co-host of the Marx Brothers Council podcast. Other projects include the book and solo show, 400 Years in Manhattan, and the graphic novel, Love Marches On. You can learn more about Noah and find all the different places on the internet where you might connect with him at noahdiamond.com. Noah, tell us a little bit about your history with the Muppets. Well, when I turned two years old, a family friend gave me four puppets, Kermit, Piggy, Fozzie, and Animal. And at this point, I knew Kermit from Sesame Street, but I was not yet aware of The Muppet Show, so I didn't know who those three other characters were. And I remember trying to decide that, you know, this animal puppet must be Oscar the Grouch, and trying to square that in my mind, like, why isn't he green? And why does he have a nose? And these are really some of my earliest memories, staring at this animal puppet and thinking, why does he have a nose? And that was 1979. So that summer, the Muppet movie was released. And my parents took me to see it at a drive-in. And it was the first movie I ever saw. And it was really an astonishing, life-altering thing to see you know, my puppets on the big screen. And it was really an important moment for me in terms of, you know, the blur between fantasy and reality and the idea that people could put on shows with their toys, more or less. And, um, of course, I also finally found out who those three other friends were. Um, And I vividly remember my mother in the car at that drive-in saying, he's animal, Oscar is animal. And so now my birthday is in February. So that means I had spent six months or at that point, a quarter of my life uh, struggling with this problem, you know, (laughs) and you know how Gonzo has that line he sings about old friends who just met. That was very much my initial experience with the Muppet movie. And from there, we started watching the Muppet show. And I, you know, I just thought it was the best thing in the world. And I pretty much still do. And I'm always struck when I look at it now of how deeply that show got under my skin and really molded you know, my taste and my aesthetic sense and my taste in music. And and now in the last decade, uh, my creative life has become so dominated by the Marx Brothers, who kind of succeeded the Muppets as my main obsession when I was a little bit older. And whenever I'm asked, you know, who else is like the Marx Brothers or where can you go for more of what you get from the Marx Brothers, uh, the Muppets are always, I think, the best answer. I think there's a clear influence. And you've talked about how uh, Henson and company sometimes reference the Marx Brothers or used their material. Oh, sure. 
I think there's kind of a Kermit on one shoulder and a Groucho on the other shoulder all the time. They're kind of my angel and devil. Which one's which? And they doomed you to a career in showbiz. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, that is is maybe the best answer to this question that we've had from any guest yet. So thank you for that. (laughs) You got it. And uh, very curious what you make of this particular excursion with the Muppets that we have before us. But we'll get there in a minute. Before we get there, we have some corrections and additions. I have a feeling that we have perhaps misunderstood the question. First, in addition, as promised, I did uh, get the DVD of Roller Coaster from my local library. Uh, as I uh, mentioned last episode, uh, Michal and I were both right. I am very glad I watched it, and uh, Michal is very glad she didn't. <laughs> um, yay, hooray! It's, it hooray. is another one of these. Uh, mid to late 70s artifacts you know that is very much of its time and it, it's just you know as as we're sort of learning the pop culture of this time uh it's an artifact that i'm really glad i watched uh that is not the same as saying it is good but in this sort of era of disaster movies it's um very distinctly not that it's a it's a thriller it has it does this thing actually really well you know where it, it's it's about um it's about a a terrorist who attacks amusement parks but the opening like his first attack you know so you you know that a bomb's going to go off on this roller coaster and so i was expecting a huge explosion which is not what happens uh spoiler alert i guess for a 45 year old movie that you're probably not going to watch it um it he sets off a little small bomb under one of the tracks so he causes a derailment and it's an old wooden roller coaster and the sequence was like one of the most upsetting things I've ever seen in a movie. And it's like, it's all practical effects and you can tell that they're mannequins and like, it's not graphic. It's not gory, but like I I found it so viscerally upsetting to watch. And apparently they actually had to tone it down to get an R rating. It's like, it's just, it's just like so upsetting. (laughs) And, um, but then like there's all the other violence is off screen. Like it's like, these are the stakes. This is what can happen. And then everything else, like you, you just hear about. It's very strange, um, but it's on DVD. You can probably get it at the library. Um, roller coaster, weird movie that I'm glad I watched. So we have a definite correction. Listener Kevin Lauderdale wrote in after listening to our Helen Ready episode to point out that the article that inspired Saturday Night Fever was from New York Magazine, not the New Yorker. Mea culpa. I had said how strange it was that that would happen because the New Yorker was so is so well known for their rigorous fact checking. Uh, New York at the time, at least, was not known for its rigorous fact checking and, in fact, has been in trouble a few times for completely fabricated stories. So there you go. Here is a Muppet News flash. So we are here this week to talk about Season 3, Episode 16 of The Muppet Show. It was produced the week of November 21st, 1978. Happy Thanksgiving, I guess. Uh, it aired February 5th, 1979, so we are moving backwards in our air order timeline. However, to a place we still have not been, this was number 17 in the air order in between Elkie Summer and Leslie Uggams, which we have still not gotten to yet. In the news, not a big news week, at least not in the U.S., Uh, Farmers press demands for increased price supports in demonstrations in Washington. Hundreds of farm families rolled into the Capitol on tractors, camper vans, and pickup trucks, and jammed major streets, delaying federal employees up to three hours in getting to work. 
I fell asleep while you were reading the headline. Like, I mean, <laughs> it just seemed like the idea of a protest on tractors, etc., in DC felt a little timely, but also much calmer. It's very Green Acres. Yes. Uh, I mean, also, we're recording this on November 5th, uh, 2022, and it's dropping on December 15th, 2022. So I I don't know what's going to happen in Washington, D.C. between now and then. Killer bees. Seems quaint now. Who who knows? Anyway, um, hope of creating perennial corn is raised by a new plant discovery. That sounds perhaps ominous. There's still some Jonestown stuff in the news. Um, In the U.K., Garbage collectors, school custodians, and grave diggers are on strike. That sounds really messy. And also, are like, are they all in the same union? That was my question. Possible. Right? Why not? <laughs> I mean, they're all dealing with garbage one way or another. Sorry. Yes. Sorry to people for whom that's a No, they are. <laughs> I'm sure some school school custodians would like to be grave diggers. On the Cashbox pop charts, Daya Think I'm Sexy is still number one, or number one again. I don't know. I've lost track of the timeline. We're two weeks earlier than the last time it was number one, so it is... Great. It has started, but whatever. So it's it number was... One. It will have... Yes. <laughs> perfectly number one. And the number one album is Briefcase Full of Blues by the Blues Brothers. Uh, on television, also a fairly uneventful week. Uh, on CBS, our regular lineup of All in the Family, Alice, MASH, WKRP in Cincinnati, and Lou Grant. Uh, uh, before that, in syndication, before The Muppet Show uh, in New York on Channel 2 is In Search of the Angel of Death. On ABC, we have uh, our favorite classic, Salvage One, and How the West Was Won, which was two hours. So I don't know if that was a season premiere. On NBC, Little House, The Sound of Children. Mary learns she is pregnant and sets out to reconcile her husband with his father. I did not watch it. That sounds too boring even for me. And speaking of too boring even for me, Backstairs at the White House, Part 2, which we have already discussed out of order. Hey, we have a sensational show for you because our special guest star is one of our favorite people, Mr. Danny Kaye. You can tell that's the beginning of the episode because Kermit's still saying nice things about him. <laughs> anyway, Danny Kaye, actor, singer, dancer, comedian, humanitarian, and asshole. <laughs> we'll get into it. Born in Brooklyn in 1911 to Ukrainian Jewish immigrants, David Daniel Kaminsky was a naturally talented, funny kid. When his mother died during his teen years, he split town with a friend and tried his luck at a musical career in Florida. That didn't last, but he had the idea that he could make his living as an entertainer. Gigs at Jewish weddings and Caskill summer camps eventually gave way to nightclubs and to Broadway. In his late 20s, he met Sylvia Fine at an audition. She was the pianist. And before long, they formed a partnership, both personal and professional. They married in 1940, and she would quickly become a key part of Danny's career as manager, producer, and writer of specialty material. Danny's first real big break came in 1941, when he had a featured role in the Broadway musical Lady in the Dark. Kurt Weill and Ira Gershwin wrote him a song called Tchaikovsky that had him rattling off the names of dozens of Russian composers at rapid-fire speed, and a star was born. (laughs) 
And Nikolai Ivanovich Lobachevsky is his name. Hey, sorry. Yes. <laughs> Carry on. Hollywood came calling, and in 1944, he starred in his first feature, a remake of Whoopi called Up in Arms, which was followed by a string of successful musicals and comedies throughout the 40s and 50s, including The Secret Life of Walter Mitty, The Court Jester, White Christmas, and Hans Christian Andersen. In the 40s, he also had a successful radio show, and he took a concert tour on the road, making a particular splash at the London Palladium in 1948. In the 50s, he had a moderately successful recording career kicked off by a number three hit, a duet with the Andrews sisters called Civilization, uh, which some of our listeners will remember because Elaine Stritch introduced it on Broadway and then did it again uh, decades later when she did her solo show at Liberty. That's the one that goes bongo, bongo, bongo. In 1954, he became UNICEF's first goodwill ambassador to the world's children, a role that he cherished and held through the end of his life. From 1963 to 1967, Kay had a CBS variety show, which you might recall is where Muppet Show guest star Harvey Korman got his start. Other Muppet Show guests Danny would cross paths with include Madeline Kahn in the 1970 Broadway musical Two by Two and Sandy Duncan in a 1976 television adaptation of Pinocchio. He also starred opposite Muppet Valentine show guest star Mia Farrow in a TV version of Peter Pan. He was, apparently, a very difficult man to work with, and his co-stars over the years told all sorts of horror stories of how he would step on their lines, steal their spotlight, undermine their roles, and so on. Uh, That real-life behavior may be the inspiration for his relationship with Miss Piggy in this episode. Beyond show business, Kay was an enthusiastic and talented chef, a pilot, a businessman whose ventures included owning a part of the Seattle Mariners, and allegedly, for a decade, the lover of Laurence Olivier. He died in 1987 at the age of 76. So uh, what do you all have to say about Danny Kay? I had a lot warmer feelings towards him before this week. Because I I have watched The Court Jester and White Christmas a a couple times each with people who grew up adoring those movies. And then I watched this episode this week and I also watched the Hans Christian Andersen movie, which... I watched almost all of it at 1.75 speed, and it still was too much. I love Danny Kay. I love him for his early work um, in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. Uh, and I often find myself in classic comedy conversations as an advocate for his inclusion uh, in you know, the very top echelon of American comedians. I really think he's the link between the Marx Brothers and their peers and Sid Caesar and his peers. Danny Kaye is that generation of comics who's just, he's just too young to have really been in vaudeville. And he's a, a founding father of the Borscht Belt circuit. Uh, he is one of those great comedians who never really made a movie that was as great as he was. I think The Court Jester is his one really great film comedy. Uh, the others are varying degrees of good as showcases for him. And I think particularly the early few films that he made for Sam Goldwyn, um, in which every now and then the movie just stops and he gets to do some of the incredible specialty material that Sylvia Fine wrote for him, uh, which is what Tom Lehrer was uh, working with when he did Lobachevsky. Uh, And those, I think, are just uh, indelible moments in the history of musical comedy. It is certainly true that later in his career, um, he became 
a much darker figure. Um, Broadway musical people, you know, still sort of hate him for his legendary bad behavior on the original production of Two by Two. Um, and as you allude to, David, in your intro, there's lots of bad stories about him. Um, those They tend to be from the 60s onward. And, you know, you can see in his later work, and this Muppet Show episode is definitely an example of it, I think it's evident how, you know, how much pain he's in. He was severely depressed. He was um, estranged from Sylvia Fine at this point. And she was as important to him being the Danny Kay everyone loved as Jane Wagner is to Lily Tomlin. You know, she was not only his writer, but in some significant way, really sort of created him as a comic persona. And I think their estrangement is another reason why, you know, from the 60s onward, there's just a coldness about him that is in real contrast to the warmth and radiance that he exuded earlier. So it's complicated, but I do think he was one of the greats. That makes a lot of sense to me. I, I this this comes up so often on the podcast that you know Danny Kay was really just just a name to me, and I think that you know, that makes sense sort of by by the point by this point in the Muppet Show you know, where he's doing the Muppet Show, he didn't have a lot left, and at this point I was three <laughs> when this came out when this first aired. I I am often surprised that I miss things like Hans Christian Andersen because you know they are like these sort of beloved children's classics and i don't know if that comes from like not having a vcr until i was 12 or what but i i don't know how i like just missed it on tv i'm i'm sure i've never seen it until today i i too came away from this episode really <laughs> with like a deep dislike for him um and so i i watched Hans christian anderson partly because i think it was just easiest it's on um it's on amazon prime uh and our slack dave was like D- you're gonna hate it and i i didn't i actually i found it charming s- slow and a little dull but i got it right you you watch that and i i could see something in him that i was like i get why at a different time in a different mode he was a beloved figure um so i'm glad that i went back and watched that i also watched today because I looked at his IMTB and I kind of figured, well, I bet in the 80s he was doing all kinds of like weird TV guest spots and he wasn't. One thing he did do was the Twilight Zone um, and that 80s Twilight Zone is notoriously terrible kind of across the board. And and wow, <laughs> that episode was bad. But even in that, like he's he is playing this sort of a- allegedly charming like sort of you know, grumpy old man, but in the like charming grumpy old man vein. And it's he's not bad so i don't know if the muppets just caught him on a bad week or what um that episode of the twilight zone is excruciating do not watch it it's on youtube uh it is one of the worst things i've ever seen but it's not because of danny k <laughs> it's because of the writing so like i sort of get it but it's tough there's a tv movie called Skokie that i think was the very last thing he did really close to the end and i think that's the one thing from his later years that kind of holds up well uh, because it was very different. It's a serious acting role. He plays a Holocaust survivor living in Skokie, protesting the Nazis marching there. And uh, he does a really credible job. It's a very moving performance. And the kind of bitterness that he had in this period works in that role. You know, he seems like a, a man who's been in a lot of pain. And um, I think post-court jester, that's the one thing I can really point to and say that is great work. Hans Christian Andersen is a deeply weird movie, and I think people who grew up with it find it magical. 
But I, I sometimes think if somebody who isn't familiar with it, if you ever really want to hurt somebody, <laughs> just t- tell them that there's a movie with a script by Moss Hart, songs by Frank Lesser, starring Danny Kay. You know, it just sounds like it must be the most urbane, sophisticated, wonderful city musical comedy you can imagine. And, you know, it's not without its charms, but it is a very strange picture. Yeah, I was really hoping for like a Murder, She Wrote or a Golden Girls or something. (laughs) But alas. At at some point this week, I had this moment when I realized that I hid in my mind combined Danny Kaye and Donald O'Connor into one person. Oh, yes. And was very disappointed to realize that they were actually two separate people uh, and that I like Donald O'Connor better. (laughs) (laughs) That makes sense. Danny Kaye dances okay. Yeah. <laughs> he dances okay. Um, but yeah, I, I, you know, I, I like Danny Kaye. I like uh, his early stuff. I like his movies. I, I love the recordings that he left behind of the songs from Lady in the Dark, which I think is why, I, uh, we won't get into this more, like I think I, I had a kinder take on this episode than everyone else did uh, the first time I watched it. But we'll see. Why don't you get me All right. Well, we've sort of hinted at it, but uh, actually, Noah, you have not given anything away about what did you think of this episode? I like this episode. I think it has a couple of wonderful things in it and some things that are kind of near misses or a little weird, but uh, amusing enough. Um, You know, I think it's a solid episode of The Muppet Show, but uh, that still is kind of disappointing because, uh, as I've indicated, um, my love for The Muppets and for Danny Kaye is is considerable. And the combination seems to me like it should be some kind of high watermark for entertainment. And it's certainly not that. And as I suggested, you know, I know enough about Danny Kaye to know how miserable he was at this time. And that's probably why I feel so acutely like that I can just see how much pain he's in. But it's hard not to think of that. And I sort of see a man in the shadow of his former greatness trying to summon the old magic and struggling and getting there occasionally, but it's a struggle. So that colors the episode for me. Also, except for in the very opening, Gonzo is completely absent here. And that just means it can't be a top-tier Muppet show. Christy? You know, this might be controversial, but my take on this is it's a problematic episode, but I think it sticks the landing. I don't hate it. <laughs> I mean, okay, I'm, I'm on record as hating jokes about Piggy's weight. Like, terrible. And I don't love the whole making fun of Kermit aspect, but I agree with Noah. I think there's a lot to appreciate here. I mean, I'm not going to fall on my sword for it compared to others necessarily, but on its own merits, I think it's fine. I mean, give me this over Peter Ustinov or Rich Little. David? I also was going to compare it to Peter Ustinov favorably, so I'm glad we're on the same page there. Uh, I, You know, I, the, so the first time I watched this episode, I, I thought like, yeah, it's fine. It's great. It's an average episode. And then I did all the like the reading up about Danny Kay, and then watched it again and, and really felt those resonances that I talked about with his treatment of his co-stars. And it felt like that's how he was treating Miss Piggy. That's how he was treating Kermit. And that, that left a little worse taste in my mouth. But, you know, this is a, a episode directed by Philip Casson, and I'm always going to go to bat for his episodes. I think that he does some great stuff with, again, expanding the world of the Muppets. I love all the stuff that takes place, uh, out by the stage door and 
Uh, oh my God. I just, I love Sattler and Waldorf's little like winter outfits in the snow. And it's just like, there's, there's just so much that, that is good about this episode that, uh, you know, it's, it's not a skip for me. It's just, you know, not outstanding. Michal? Yeah, you're right. Waldorf's outfit is great. And Piggy's hair is fantastic. Everything else I could just easily forget about and wish I hadn't seen. Danny Kaye just comes off as a bully. And I know it was scripted for him, but he comes off as a bully. <sighs> His performance just makes me uneasy. And also, older Danny Kaye is just kind of unsettling to look at. He's, I mean, I've, that this sounds like an ageist thing to say, but I don't know, something about his face and his hair, like it falls into this uncanny valley of human. I'm sorry. We had a whole conversation on the Slack about whether he had eyebrows or not. Uh, it's, there's, the, the makeup team on The Muppet Show did not do him any favors. I didn't like this episode. Yeah, I hated it. I, I mean, I'm already on record as liking Peter Ustinov better than you guys did. If that's our, if that's our, uh, <laughs> our, our milestone, we've had guests being antagonistic with the Muppets before. It's like the way that he plays it; he's so unpleasant about it. But it's also like the content, even the non-Danny K content. I just, I don't care. Danny K, twenty seconds to curtain, Mister K. <laughs> now there's a real pro. Most performers are a nervous wreck before the curtain. He takes a nap. Okay, so Danny Kay may seem to Scooter to be calm and collected before the show, so calm that he's taking a nap. But then when Scooter wakes him up, Danny Kay wakes up in a panic. He starts putting on makeup. He starts strumming a ukulele. He manages to knock himself out on the wardrobe and then conks out again for another little nap. I mean, given what we just talked about, about his actual real-life mental state, this seems like a real unpleasant manic episode he's having (laughs) it's weird yeah time for another depression nap 15 seconds after the last one it feels like one of those things where the muppet show writers sometimes give a star just a little taste of some signature antics you know give them like a few seconds to do something that they're known for doing in this cold open and in k's case it's like well this is the manic k and in his best work you know or in his best film work um this is a familiar mode for him this kind of neurotic frantic trying to get things done and you know he's kind of summoning a version of himself that i've laughed at in other things um, but it's unmotivated. He doesn't seem to really have the energy to pull it off well. Um, and it's a little creepy the way he collapses into sleep again. Yeah, I can't not think of his mental state uh, looking at this. Yeah, it's pretty unnerving. And perhaps that is why in the opening, Statler and Waldorf just kind of shake their heads and then silently walk out of the box. And later we learn they've walked out of the theater entirely and they don't come back. I thought it was really noticeable that there was no laugh track for their decision to leave. Like it's not played as like, ha ha, they're not taking their seats as it might be on another week. It's it's played as like a story beat. Hmm. Yeah. It's interesting that the story beat starts during the opening theme. So that's something interesting about this episode. Gonzo gets hit by a soccer ball, which shoves his trumpet all the way down his throat that was too much for my gag reflex. Maybe that's why he's out for the rest of the episode. That's a lot. Yeah. No, thank you. Yeah, Muppet Joe backstage. We've got 
rather than a plot, let's say we've got a couple of themes this week. So this week backstage and also on stage and also outside of the theater entirely, Statler and Waldorf spend the entire show or almost all of the show just hanging out in the alley outside. Floyd goes to the box to investigate where they've gone, first of all. Maybe they didn't like the acoustics. Why, can't you hear what's being said on stage? Every word. So that's cute. It turns out that Stetler and Waldorf have not ventured very far. They didn't go home. And they're not exactly sitting in protest outside the theater. They're just kind of sitting. They're hanging around and complaining and being glad they're not inside. It's almost as bad out here as it is inside. (laughs) Either way, we're sitting around looking at garbage. (laughs) Still, I'd rather be here for this show. Yeah, yeah, the Muppets are always about the same. But this week's guest star, who? What's his face, Kay? Yeah, who? I tell you, he is the worst performer on earth. Well, you can't be sorry. Well, I am so. He's not the worst performer on earth. Well, then who is? Clive Kowinga, the singing civil servant. You raise a good point, Michal. Why don't they go home? They want to show off their fabulous winter gear. They have these fur coats. The television audience won't appreciate them if they're at home. It's Maybe true. it's a double feature and they need to be around for whatever comes after the Muppet <laughs> Show. Still, go to a bar. No, they want to sit in the snow, look at garbage and complain. It's true. The I mean, We alluded to it already, but Waldorf's outfit is the best. It is. It is. I love it so much. My favorite Muppet of the week is Waldorf's hat. I love the way they're lit out there. And even though I know it's in a studio, it feels very outdoors in the way that the Muppet movies do, like Muppets in real locations. And even the sound is a little different. They've, they've put a little a little reverb on it to make it, to make it feel like they're really in an alley. It's great. So meanwhile, inside, we are treated to some Statler and Waldorf-esque antics from Floyd and Janice, who are just sitting in the empty seats in the box. And it's great. Every show, Statler and Waldorf sit up here. Show after show after show. Now I see why. You see why they come? No, I see why they left. (laughs) That's cute. That is one cute thing about this episode. Floyd and Janice being Stellar and Waldorf. It's true. I sort of forgot about that when we were talking before. Yeah. It was drowned out by everything else that I did remember about this episode. Meanwhile, I guess the other motif this week is that just... Nobody likes Danny Kay, <laughs> and especially Miss Piggy, because Danny Kay is a dick to her. Some time ago, I heard you sing this song, and I thought the way you did it was absolutely memorable. I don't remember that. Oh, well, that was years and years and years ago. <laughs> I, I think I said something wrong. Uh, What I meant was uh, way back when you were thin. (laughs) I think in general, here and elsewhere, the writers are really struggling with the fact that Danny Kaye had no persona. You know, there's really no Danny Kaye you can write into a Muppet Show episode. So you have to make decisions about what what these relationships are going to be. And they sort of wrote for him as though he's an insult comic. Um, And I agree that this kind of piggy weight jokes and things rarely comes off well when anyone does them. But but because of this coldness that he has, and even at his best, he was more of an elegant comedian. Um, It's just none of this plays well because he doesn't have a personality to hang it on. 
I'm going to disagree with that. I think that he very much had a personality, which was essentially the flamboyant wink, wink, nudge, nudge. We're all going to acknowledge that this character is gay without actually acknowledging that the character is gay in a number of movies that was paired with him playing a second character who was like the butch counterpoint Prince of the Popper style. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think he, maybe it's just too soon after Liberace that they can't really pull off the like butterfly version of uh, Danny Kay. And, and maybe at this point in his career too, he was like so far away from that persona, which was really what he did in all those movies in the forties. But that's that's sort of who I think of when I think of Danny Kane. I think that's sort of what his fans thought of. We're not here to rewrite the Muppet Show, but if I was going to rewrite this episode, I probably would figure out a way to let him do the the two people plot, which they haven't yet done on an episode of the Muppet Show, and seems really well suited for the fast paced backstage where you never know who's coming and going and it would be funny to have like a mistaken identity between like sort of wimpy Danny K and macho Danny K but oh well I don't think we're getting that till season five this whole I mean the whole scene is so weird I mean I, I I'm giving Danny K a hard time but like like picky doesn't make any sense in this scene either really like why that thing about I mean I, I get the joke right that like oh I saw I saw you do this years and years ago and like she's like are you calling me old but it's not a good joke. It doesn't really make any sense. And then it just escalates from there. And they're both just nasty to each other the entire time. Yeah, I don't even know what to say about this. It seems like he's doing it by accident, but then he starts doing it on purpose. And then they start having this weird battle before they have to do a duet together later. Right. And so, like, is he making it uh Like, is he, is he just trying to to suck up to her? It just, it none, none of it really makes any sense except to set up the fight, which is actually pretty funny when they're on stage, but I don't understand why they're, why they couldn't set it up better. Yeah. It just doesn't make sense because, you know, Piggy, Piggy's not being like guileless about it. Like the, the way Frank Oz is playing it, Piggy has no clue what he's talking about. Yeah. It's funny once they get into it, but then it's not quite earned miss piggy says that a true professional doesn't need to rehearse and that made my head hurt that's not how it works yeah that's not true at all so in addition to being a dick to miss piggy uh he also bullies kermit and does a weird not quite impression impression of him and kermit at least calls him out on it and then kind of bullies Kermit into insisting that we do the finale backstage. And I, I, let's listen to that. Why don't we do it back here? You see? And so it's, it's a song for just friends, huh? Oh, well, yeah, but, uh, but, but uh, what, 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 there's nothing on stage. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, but, yeah, nothing on stage. But why don't we get something on stage? Uh, uh, I, I could go on. Oh, that, that, that's uh, Clive Coinga, the uh, singing civil servant. I know, Fonz, I know. What a weird episode. <laughs> I mean, like, what were they planning to do? Like, did they have another number plan for Denny Kay? And then he's like, no, I'll do this one instead, but not on stage. Like, what the fuck is happening? <laughs> I mean, we've made our peace with it. the fact that sometimes 
numbers on the Muppet show just happen backstage and the audience applauds anyway. And this is the universe we live in. But if we're going to play it as though there is a live show happening and something needs to be on stage and the guest star is insisting on not going on, that's not how this should work. Also, did anyone else find it's a song for just friends creepy? (laughs) The notion. I mean, everything about this is creepy, but we'll talk more about that when we talk about the song. It's just, it's just between us. Don't tell your parents. We're just going to sing a little song backstage. And then he's lit like a child molester. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, let's save it. But oh, God, the lighting in the scene. (laughs) (laughs) What is happening? (sighs) Annie Sue, Children of the Damned going on. So do you think Statler and Waldorf knew what he was about the whole time and knew that he'd been bullying everybody? So they just made up how much they hated Danny K or Mr. K that was some other K. Well, I wonder if that K has done his act yet. Well, thank goodness we're not there to know. Imagine a tuned clam player. Mm, I hate that Manny K. <laughs> Manny K? Oh, why, it's Danny K. What? Sure. You're one of our favorites. You know, I said they put some reverb on it, but actually I think that they're literally inside a box. But still, it works. Do we think that they were just stringing him along on purpose and knew that Danny K was overhearing them? No. No, because they're kind of assholes, too. (laughs) I think they were like, oh, one of us. But they're better dressed. Can't argue with that. They would never want to be part of an inchworm sing-along. No, that's not their thing. Or this this hippie nonsense (laughs) that's about to happen. Yeah. Let's get into the music. We have several flavors of nonsense uh, in the music this week, uh, <laughs> uh, and and non nonsense uh, sense. So sense. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Is that how that works? Yeah, I have the uh, arithmetic uh, skills of an inchworm, um, but we'll get there. So. The hippies come out in full force for our opening number. This is the dawning of the age of Aquarius. The age of Aquarius. 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 So if you're a musical theater person, this this is actually two songs. If you are a person who is only familiar with the pop radio of the 60s, this is one song. Uh, This is Aquarius and uh, Let the Sun Shine In. Uh, And uh, they are, in fact, from a musical called Hair. Is somebody going to make the hair of it joke? Oh, (laughs) I forgot. (laughs) I've I've heard Heard of it. it. The full official title of Hair, by the way, is Hair, the American Tribal Love Rock Musical. Sure. God bless. And it has music by Galt McDermott and lyrics by James Rado and Jerome Ragney. Uh, and it debuted in 1967. It it opened uh, the br- brand new at that time public theater. 
And it was the first work by living writers produced by the legendary Joe Papp, which I found interesting. And I I could talk at length about hair. I won't. I, I will just throw out a couple of things that I, I find interesting. James Rado and Jerome Ragney were like downtown theater guys who were really plugged into the hippie scene. And uh, they wrote like all of the text of this first. And um, they were, were introduced to Galt McDermott, who was like their total opposite. He was a Canadian jazz pianist who was living in Staten Island with his wife and f- four kids at the time. And like, he'd like knew nothing about hippies or anything that was going on with the youth at the time. <laughs> um, but <laughs> I, as a musical theater writer, I've always said that the thing that, that activates an idea is having somebody who understands it from the outside in and somebody who understands it from the inside out. And that was definitely what happened here is I, I think Galt McDermott was able to translate into musical terms dynamically what Rado and Ragney were trying to say. And there's a really great interview with Galt McDermott on a podcast uh, from years ago that is long since defunct that the American Theater Wing put out called Downstage Center. And uh, McDermott talks about like getting brought into it and how like unfamiliar the whole world of it was and, you know, how how he uh, collaborated with those guys. And it's it's worth a listen if you're you're into the, the nuts and bolts of making musical theater. And I've always referred to this as uh cliff's notes hair because <laughs> aquarius is the opening number of the show and let the sunshine in or the flesh failures its actual title is the closing number and weirdly let the sunshine in was not in the original production of the show it was added to the show between its so it, it opened the, at the public and then it transferred to a nightclub called cheetah where it played mm-hmm. for like 45 ish performances and then from there transferred to Broadway and 13 songs were added for the Broadway production. So they really, I mean, the Broadway show is almost out. an entirely different show from what it was off Broadway. It's like yeah. the script is very, very different yeah. as well as the score. I think want to say maybe did, did the director change or did he just like start from scratch again? Something like that. Yeah. Um, but the reason why these songs are, are smushed together here is because in combination, they were a huge hit for the R&B group, The Fifth Dimension, who saw the show. And they originally were, were really into Aquarius, but Aquarius, as it's written, kind of is half a song, really. And so they were like, we need to fill it out somehow. And so they were convinced to uh, attack on Let the Sunshine In. And it was number one on the Hot 100 for six weeks. There's a really great discussion about hair and about the history of show tunes on the charts on an episode of Chris Malampi's Hit Parade podcast that we've mentioned a few times. Great, great, great podcast. And I definitely recommend checking out that particular episode if you're into both the kind of chart stuff that we talk about, but also musicals. Because he, he points out that it's only one of two songs from musicals to ever hit number one. Do you guys know what the other one is? Oh man! Is it one night in Bangkok? I mean, I wanted to be one night in Bangkok. No, no. I mean it. <laughs> but it can't. It, oh. it hit the top ten, but not. Uh, it, uh, okay, here's your hint. It came before this song. Like I've, I've listened to this episode. Okay, so it's not. So I should. It's not from a jukebox musical. No. Is it people? No. The Hot 100 started in 1958. Hello, Dolly. It is. Ah. Ah. It's like wait, we talked about it. Yeah. Which recording of Hello Dolly? Louis Armstrong. Like from the, ah, 
that makes sense. Yeah. I, well, I have two thoughts. One, because I enjoy ruining things for other people. Uh, I mean, I love this song. I love both these songs and I have complicated feelings about the musical hair. Uh, mostly pop. It's a brilliant album. It is a nonsense piece of theater. Yeah, what, what, like if you <laughs> see if you see the if you see the right production at the right time, yeah, it can be yeah. very powerful sure. and moving. And I sure. will leave it at that. Um, and and I have I have been fortunate enough to do that. And then I've also seen others. Back to Muppets. Uh, I hated this. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought it was so stupid and boring. Like this was the best they could do with this with this song, which is like a great. A great song with so many possibilities. We we should explain what's happening. So it's four whatnots who start out with short hair that with like each shot gets longer and longer and longer. But they're dressed the, like, like they're fucking in. singing at Carnegie Hall. Yeah, they're, they're all in like concert yeah. formal wear. I hate that. That's I actually thought this was a cute idea. I mean, that's that's that, like, the joke. There are some squares do, doing a hippie number. Like that that seems like a fine Muppety thing to do. And then the fact that they keep growing longer hair over the course of the next two minutes until by the end of it, they're running around yelling, who knows where the barber is. It also requires that you know that these songs are from hair, which, I mean, this is not even 10 years removed from when it was a hit. So like, sure. The the, the first time I genuinely didn't know what was happening. Like I, <laughs> like I didn't clock it entirely until all of a sudden I was like, "Wait, they have hair now, and, and, and they're disoriented. What's happening? What's happening?" I I don't know. Yeah, I had to scroll back. I would have liked it better if if they did this shtick to the song, song hair. "Hair" instead of to this song. Yes, yeah, it would make more. Would have made much more sense. I also think I would have liked it better if instead of achieving this by just editing. And swapping out wigs if they'd come up with some kind of mechanism to have the hair grow. Yeah. And that may just be me being contrary because, like, who the fuck am I to tell them how to do puppets? But again, the first time I saw it, that didn't really bother me. The second time I saw it, I was so distracted by like the number of edits that were necessary in order to achieve this effect. They happened seamlessly enough that it, it took a little while to notice what was going on, like Christy said. But also, I had forgotten that they started out with short hair by that point. They also, the the men who were singing in this just seem particularly ill-suited to this song. And I don't know if that's part of the joke that they're, they have no like rock and roll to them. The women, I think, fare a little better. But I don't know why we couldn't get like a slightly better performance. Also, the arrangement is not great. It's very variety show, and I don't mean that as a compliment. Hmm. Oh, all right, let's move on. Let's move on. Um, so our, our next bit of music, it's not a musical number, but music that underscores s- some dancing food. So this piece of music is called, is called Baby's Coming Home. It's actually an instrumental that was written by Chet Atkins and Jerry Reed. It's a, a country instrumental. It doesn't sound super country here, but it's from 1974, so fairly recent at this particular point in time. 
Chet Atkins is one of the most influential guitarists in country music. He died in 2001. He was ranked number 21 on Rolling Stone's 100 Greatest Guitarists of All Time list. Very deserved, if not deserved to be higher. He won 14 Grammys, plus an additional Lifetime Achievement Grammy in his lifetime, and was inducted in both the Rock and Roll and Country Halls of Fame. I love Chad Atkins. And Jerry Reed, uh, his collaborator on this, was a country singer, songwriter, guitarist. He won his Grammy for a song called When You're Hot, You're Hot, which is sort of a an unfortunate earworm. Um, <laughs> he's also known as the, the singer of the song Eastbound and Down from the Smokey and the Bandit soundtrack, which, and this led me down a rabbit hole, I discovered that he wrote with Dina K. Rose, who is a prominent songwriter from the 70s Nashville country scene who came out as trans in 2014 and wrote a book about her experiences. Who also shares a name with Denny Kay's daughter, Dina Kay. <laughs> yeah. That's Could that wild. possibly be a coincidence? <laughs> I mean, I know it's not Danny Kay's daughter, Dina, who was named because he and Sylvia Fine devised in their early days together this way of performing the song Dinah in an uh, ambiguous accent, and he would sing Dina. Is there anyone Fina in the state of Carolina? It's funnier than it sounds. <laughs> <laughs> That's why they named their daughter Dina, and that can't be an accident. Wow. Huh. Took two people to write that song? Go figure. <laughs> there you go. Uh, it's never not my favorite thing. Um, we should talk about the actual sketch. So this is a construction worker on his lunch hour uh, sitting on a girder high above the city, which always makes me nervous, even in still photographs. And he pulls out a banana, it goes to toss the banana peel, and then the banana peel comes back and starts dancing, and then like everything in the lunchbox comes out and starts dancing, and there's celery. I think it's important to say that this is not the Muppet banana that we're used to, but a very different Muppet banana, banana. which bothered me. You don't find it appealing? Well, it's just the peel dancing, but the guy is holding the banana fruit from inside the peel during most yeah, of he's holding a banana that stops looking like a banana the moment it's out of its peel. It looks like a pickle that happens to be yellow, while the peel does a little tap dance on the yeah, side. Yeah, it's very weird. The tap dancing banana peel and the tap dancing celery uh, and the little high kicking carrots. Those are all very cute. Yeah. It's hard to argue with dancing food. Yeah, but then it takes a, a turn for the weird and creepy because... Uh, he ends up getting sucked into the lunchbox and eaten. And the lunchbox burps. Alas, it is dangerous out on those beams. Yeah, just not in the way that you think. But who peels a banana, discards the peel, and then sits gripping the unpeeled banana and eating it? Isn't the whole Ugh. convenience of eating a banana that it has this built-in system to hold it? Also, sir, you are on a beam on a <laughs> building. <laughs> you just carelessly toss... Your banana peel, famously slippery object. <laughs> I mean, at that at that velocity, like it could. Oh, sure. I just meant somebody. like he's left it on the beam for one of his coworkers or himself later to slip and fall on. But yeah, even throwing it off the edge is not right. appropriate. Those are the options. Yeah. If it stays on the beam, it's going to kill somebody. If it falls, it's going to kill somebody else. Those. <laughs> those there are two ways this could go. 
and they all lead to murder. Sure. Right. Or it could tap dance and eventually lead to you getting eaten by your lunchbox. There's a third possibility I had not foreseen. Does anyone know how this set works? Mm-hmm. Is the is the backdrop like is the lower part of the backdrop actually in front and it's a really good illusion, or is something else happening? I honestly couldn't tell. I think there's something covering I think it's just good perspective painting where like Yeah. They're standing behind the thing, but it looks like it's further back. That was my guess. It's very well done. Yeah, I was busy watching a tap dancing banana. Actually, no, I take that back. I think what it is, is a composite image Um, where the bottom half is added on in post-production. Oh, interesting. Because if you look at the way the shadows fall from his feet, there's like a very stark cutoff at the bottom of the beam. And if there was a painting there, I think the shadow would sometimes hit it. Right. That makes sense, too. All right, cool. So let's get into the Piggy versus Danny K duet, shall we? Heaven, I'm in heaven, and my heart beats so that I can hardly speak, and I seem to find the happiness I need. <laughs> When we're out together dancing cheek to cheek. <laughs> it's Cheek to Cheek, which is an Irving Berlin song uh, from 1935, written for the Fred Astaire movie Top Hat, which we've heard uh, another song from, the uh, Top Hat, White Tie and Tails number that Rudolf Nureyev did in his episode. And if you're playing the Muppeturgy drinking game, this song was nominated for the Best Song Oscar, but it lost to Lullaby of Broadway. I feel like it's a double shot if it loses to a song that the Muppets have also done. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. And it was number 15 on the AFI 100 Years 100 Songs list that we've talked about. Uh, And it was number one for 11 weeks, a staggering 11 weeks on Your Hit Parade, which was a radio show that ran from 1935 to 1953 that was sort of the chart in the 30s and 40s, kind of pre-Billboard and, you know, we mentioned earlier, the Billboard Hot 100 began in 1958. Uh, and it it was consequently the number one song of 1935, the Despacito of 1935. <laughs> it um, all comes back to being compared to Despacito. <laughs> <laughs> I just love that comparison. And here, here's the thing. I, I think there w- was a, a possible additional zeitgeist bit of context to this song being chosen. I mean... Yes, you know, classic song, Danny Kaye, movie musicals, sure. But uh, it's interpolated into the background vocals of a song called Heaven on the Seventh Floor by Paul Nicholas that was a fairly big disco hit in 1977. I brought a clip. Why, yes, it is a disco banger about being stuck in an elevator. (laughs) And if the name Paul Nicholas sounds familiar to you, it's because he's the original magical Mr. Mistopheles. From and the original the Jesus London and the London Jesus Christ Superstar, which 
you have to be a nerd to know because that's not the album that people hear. But he was. <laughs> yeah. And also Cousin Kevin in the uh, Ken Russell film version of Tommy. Paul Nicholas had several great disco bangers. I, I recommend looking up uh, Grandma's Party <laughs> and uh, Reggae Like It Used To Be. That one's kind of problematic. But Kevin on the Seventh Floor and Grandma's Party are uh, sure to make your uh, party uh, fun, if not slightly awkward. Thought you said Grand Moff's party for a second. I got really excited. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Dancing with the Captain. That's the other one. Uh, slightly nautical themed. The staging of this, I feel like, is a pretty cogent argument for the importance of an intimacy coordinator. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're like stepping on each other literally and figuratively. There's something about the set for this number, which is sort of... Uh, it's kind of like a sky background with, I want to say columns, but it might actually be like drapes. It is a little more impressionistic than what we're used to seeing for musical numbers on The Muppet Show. Uh, much more in line with like what we saw for I'm a Woman on the Raquel Welch episode. It's mostly notable because this sort of feels like we're starting to move into like late Muppet Show from a design perspective, like we don't have these sort of Baroque flat paintings behind them. And we don't have these contrived, like, why are we in India for this number? Like, it's just uh, sort of a classy, but a little bit vague music video style set. Yeah. I wonder if there's a budget thing happening too. like, right. Cause last week, last week was the sand, which, like I have not been tracking this. If 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 we can get a sense of like, oh, they spent a bunch of money here, and then they had to go cheap here because this whole episode. I mean, I, I I joked about the backdrop for Aquarius, but like Aquarius felt real cheap. This feels real cheap. They're not really right. Inchworm, they do want an existing set <laughs> exactly. Um, and the re- actually, I meant to I meant to bring up when the the rehearsal scene. Like, where are they? Like, I think it's the canteen set, but it's not the canteen. I think you're right. It's like a it's like a weird angle on the canteen. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of that happening. Um, I've pulled up the GIF I made of this. It is a uh, a gold gate that is weirdly floating in space, and some swagged fabric with cherubs and two very gaudy uh, sort of candelabra statue situations. So I believe it is meant to be heaven, as in heaven. I'm in heaven. <laughs> Um, and then like a purple, a purple psych, purple lit psych. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, it is not, it's real abstract. Uh, and it's only really the, the cherubs that are, and I guess the gate that are giving me that it could just as easily be, you know, brighter Phantom of the Opera or Liberace. Um, so it made no impression on me whatsoever. (laughs) So I'm glad you brought it up and I had something to reference because I had no idea. The other delightful bit of trivia that I learned while prepping for this is that this song was also featured in the 1984 Muppet Show on Tour live stage show, where Beauregard got to sing the song to his mop, who is named Belregard. (laughs) (laughs) Muppet Wiki is unclear on whether Belregard spoke or even appeared, or if it was just a video projection of some sort. I don't know, but I want to learn more. I would like to read some Beauregard fan fiction, if you please. Are you sure you want to? 
No, no, I'm <laughs> Be not. Be careful what you wish for. Once I again, would like to see Beauregard and Beauregard on a double date with George and his mop. Well, once I was again, I say, say justice for George. George has done this. He's done it better. <laughs> Why do we need Beauregard? George loves his mop. We've known this from the very beginning. Do you think it's the same mop? No. Do you think Beauregard inherited the mop along with the position? No, that would be sacrilege. If he did, he definitely changed its name to Belregard. Right. Well, that would be quite the coincidence otherwise. (laughs) (laughs) Well, he could have called it Dina Kay, I suppose. Right. (laughs) There's always that possibility. So we have a UK spot to talk about, uh, which may be shocking to you if you only watched the episode on Disney Plus, because I'm sad to report this is not on Disney Plus. However, I'm not that sad to report it because it's not great. It's not bad. Isn't it though? Is it? I mean, it's fine. One, two, three, four. Nice and easy. One, two, three, four. Oh, it's lovely. Jogging around the park in the dawn for the dark tones you up and leaves you fit. <sighs> though it makes you puff and pant a bit. <sighs> Jogging down the street, friendly folk who I meet try to pass the time of day. Uh, I can't stop who wants to anyway. Uh, goodbye, those bulges up front, and from where I sit, my I'm feeling fit. Mm-hmm. I think it's charming. It's cute enough. I forgot that there was the little, like, yes, working out expressly to lose the bits of my body I don't like bit. There was that. Oh, I totally did not clock the lyrics at all, even right now when we were doing nothing but <laughs> do it. I was like, it's got a nice beat. <laughs> if you say so. This is a song called Jogging. It was written by Miles Rudge and Mike Sams. And it's funny that you mentioned George, because remember how we talked about how there was a, a British sitcom called George and Mildred? Um, well, this is part of a distinctly British phenomenon of sitcom stars putting out novelty singles. And this was a novelty single that was put out by Brian Murphy, who played George Roper on uh, George and Mildred. <laughs> what? So a little bit about the guys that wrote it. Miles Rudge uh, was a comedy writer and lyricist, and the majority of his career was writing uh, novelty songs. Uh, th- this was his genre. His two biggest hits uh, were songs for Bernard Cribbins, which for people of our general age range, Bernard Cribbins is better known as uh, Donna Noble's grandfather, Wilf on Dr. Who. Um, but in 1962, he had two hits uh, with the hole in the ground and right said Fred. And if you're thinking it, yes, that's where the band got their name. I was thinking it. So thank you. Yes, me too. You're welcome. <laughs> and then Mike Sams, uh, who wrote the music was primarily like a backup singer session musician guy and a vocal arranger. He actually formed a vocal group called the Mike Sam singers and they recorded seven albums of their own from 1962 to 1988 and sang on several uh, TV themes on British TV shows and recorded several songs for Disneyland records. None that I was familiar with though. There were a few Christmas albums. There was a fiddler on the roof album that they put out. Sure. And then uh, Now We Are Six, uh, they recorded some songs for. So, yeah. So, I, I'm extra sad to report that I I fell down 
a useless rabbit hole trying to track down uh, the provenance of the music sung by one Clive Coenga. We do have a clip. For tonight's big finale, the Muppet Show proudly presents Clive Coenga singing to the music of Mozart, the Municipal Vermin Abatement Code. Section 1, rats, subheading infestation, rodent populations in an urban area. Yeah, I sat down at the piano, I figured out what key it's in, it's in D major. I listened to all manner of Mozart. I went digging through some Mozart scores. I think this may just be a Larry Grossman uh, goof. But if somebody out there happens to know that, yes, this is, in fact, a real piece of Mozart, let us know, because we tried everything. I tried, well, I mean, I I didn't think that Shazam would get us very far, but I tried Shazam. I tried Soundhound. I tried singing into the Google app on my phone. I tried screaming into the wind. La la las, or did you sing the vermin abatement? I, I sang la la las. Uh, <laughs> okay. And sadly, uh, Google had nothing to tell me. So, uh, yeah, we we would love to know the true history of this piece of music, but we don't know it. We tried, but the good news is our closing number. We definitely know the history of, and if you've been listening to our podcast you probably know a little bit about it too before before we get there i do have i i just have to call out well i i love clive clanga it's a it's a great joke i assume that somebody thought singing civil servant was funny and then decided to actually make it happen it's really the only thing i truly love about this episode but i also have to call out it is the laziest prop i have ever seen in my entire life his book he's holding a book that somebody has drawn on in magic marker <laughs> like little rats and and bugs squiggles yeah and i mean it wouldn't be a book it would be like a binder or something but also i actually went and looked up the new york city vermin code I'm uh, so glad. and it's not very long it's just a you know it's a pdf it's yeah a like right it's a it's a municipal manual but like even if they fine but like the cover i mean i know it was only on screen for 30 seconds not not even like that clip was basically the whole the whole bit but like come on guys <laughs> that's all okay sorry let's talk about worms let's go from vermin to worms you probably go It's inchworm again. Yay. A song for just friends. Um, <laughs> sure is. <laughs> talk about your inchworm. Don't tell your parents. <laughs> Let's keep this among oh, us. No. Don't tell the audience. So yes, we we have oh uh, we have heard this song before. 
Uh, it was in the Charles Nazdavor episode in season one. It's from the previously discussed Hans Christian Andersen movie that Danny Kaye starred in uh, with songs by Frank Lesser. And we've talked a little bit about the song, but we, you know, in our various discussions of the song, we've talked about it being creepy, about it being unsettling, about it being like melancholy and sad. Did we talk um, about how it was also one of David Bowie's favorite songs? I think we did, but you should say it again. Yeah. Cause I forgot the, yeah. Well, I don't think because I know we talked about you and I and George being one of his favorite songs. Oh, maybe that's what I'm thinking. Yeah, I don't think we talked about this this being one of his favorite songs, but yes, it absolutely was. And I, this is the one thing in this episode involving Danny Kaye that works for me. I know that's a controversial opinion. I love this song, (laughs) but I know that it's weird. I know that the the children counting counterpoint say that five times fast, is unsettling. So I am not bothered by the song musically, though I get it. I mean, I don't get it. I don't understand it. Christy's going to explain it. But but I appreciate it. I am bothered by this song dramaturgically. He's an interim, not a math worm. If he's measuring the marigolds, why are there multiplication tables? Aren't they addition tables? No. Yes. 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 So in the Still. context of the film that it was written for, <laughs> this song is sung by school children who are inside the school while Danny Kaye's character is outside thinking about how sad it is that they have to be inside learning math and they can't be outside hearing Hans Christian Andersen's wacky stories and he Yes. makes up this little song that about inchworms. That so in is the film, much more makes... imaginative than whatever math the children are learning. So it's not supposed to represent true. math. So in the Charles episode, it's like that too. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And that's how they do it in the Charles episode. So I didn't, I didn't really notice at the time, but he still says you and your arithmetic will certainly go far to the interim. The interim's not doing arithmetic. The interim is just crawling. It's measuring. Possibly measuring. You can't see the inside of the inchworm's head. The inchworm could be doing like, you know, quadratic equations. Right. I'm just <laughs> saying, I wish that they had like <laughs> written a non-movie version of this song that where the backing vocals made some kind of sense or were just sounds because it's real weird. Something that I think is interesting about this song is when we talked about it in the Charles Aznavour episode, Somebody referred to it as being minor key, and it's not. It's actually, it uses something that I love, which is, and I'm not going to get too arcane on you, but there's there's an effect where if, if you like follow, so, okay, let, let's say this is our like, our tonic, our like home chord. Um, if, if, you, if you go from there to... Uh, seven seventh chord underneath it it creates this sort of like feeling of instability where you sort of feel like you're in minor so it's like because it's like you're being pulled from your like home base is that the and frank the opening chord progression of on broadway yeah actually yeah um but 
Frank Lesser used this in another song. So, you know, inchworm, inchworm. He also used this, like, all, almost the exact same chord progression in um, What Are You Doing New Year's Eve? Which makes sense because you're asking a question. You don't, don't know the answer and you're nervous about it. You know, maybe it's not too early in the game. Oh, but I thought I'd ask you just the same. Inchworm, inchworm. Measuring the marigolds. You and your arithmetic. It's sort of the same thing. Um, but another song that evokes, I think, the same sort of, uh, like, uncertainty, melancholy, and, like, childhood weirdness that uses the same thing is uh, uh, Christmas Time is Here from A Charlie Brown Christmas. Oh, boy. Christmas time is here. <laughs> but then it, it, it goes somewhere else. But yeah, I, I I find it interesting that that it reads to some people as as minor when it really isn't. And and part of it has to do with the the children, you know, the sort of like chromatic thing that they're doing. So, I was gonna say, yeah. what what's going on with like? There's that that the high note that they do in between the chord change, like four. Yeah, it's they're they're slipping into like a, it like it's it's dissonant. Yeah, because it's not the opening chord that makes me creeped out by this song. It's the two and two are four, but it's the it's the same seventh you're saying. Yeah, which you know, in 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 other chord contexts, it is minor. Like if it went, but it but it's happening in the context of a major chord. So it's minor on top of major. So, Michael, is it also the children's choir of it all? <laughs> <laughs> which it's not here, but it still sort of feels like it is anyway. Right. I mean, it's the, the Muppets are filling in in the role of children's choir. Yeah. And there are some children among the Muppets in the background. And they're like lit like they're Muppets. demons from hell. And there's, <laughs> and there's Mary Louise, the child Mary Louise hanging out with Annie Sue. Up and by a the, random violinist, which I do love actually. The random violinist hanging out with Mary Louise and Annie Sue does make it seem like Mary Louise's parents have died in the war and now Annie Sue has to adopt her and they're all each other have. Like, it it seems like they have some kind of backstory. Well, and they're up on the balcony and they're lit from below and it's just like they've they've all seen some shit. And then the the foreground Muppets are all like the most popular Muppets plus Drew. Plus Drew. Plus. Plus some random ass whatnot who looks like he wandered in from Sesame Street. <laughs> One very cute thing that happens that I didn't notice until the third watch. Well, because I'm busy watching Danny K bullying Kermit and being annoyed about it. But also what happens up in the balcony is that Shaky Sanchez is there hanging out, being a random Muppet. He ducks down and when he comes back up, he's got Robin in his mouth, like by the scruff of Robin's neck. Not like he's eating Robin, but like he just gently places him on the railing so that Robin can participate in the song. It's really cute. That is really cute. Yeah. And the first one we enter the scene, like we, we must, we must give appropriate 
props to uh, is Droop. Droop enters very slowly uh, from stage right, nose first. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I just imagine Droop being like, we're doing something sad and creepy. Put yep. me in. <laughs> or don't. And then Droop I don't sticks have around. To. Like, in the final <laughs> scene when they're doing their goodbyes, he like crawls up on Denny K's back and is like, his nose is like drooping over his shoulder. You can just like smell the sadness wafting <laughs> off of him. That's okay. I still got myself pity. <laughs> oh, Droop. Oh, I miss Droop so much. <laughs> Jazz, listen, turkey. What? And get out of show business? All right, a little bit of show business before we wrap this up. Um, I'll just mention that the the Flying Zucchini Brothers have a little bit of something. They're going to attempt to hurl themselves into a water-filled bucket from, is it 200 feet up? It's pretty high. Beauregard finds the bucket and says, who moved my bucket? And then just moves it around so they just keep falling. Anyway, let's talk about the Swedish chef sketch. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure what I even want to say about the Swedish chef sketch. So the, the Swedish chef apparently has an uncle. The uncle is portrayed by Danny Kay. Danny Kay is doing some kind of accent that starts off as a Scandinavian thing and then very quickly devolves into this Borscht Belt Jewish grandfather thing by way of a little bit of Ludwig von Drake. <laughs> <laughs> This is where more than any other time, I just wish Kay could have done the Muppet Show 30 years earlier. Mm. And it seems like it would be such a good place to put him, cast him as the Swedish chef's uncle. Uh, the idea is much funnier than the sketch ever gets to be. And although you wouldn't know it here, in his prime, one of his real specialties was the ability to do double talk, you know, gibberish in any language. Um, he was really brilliant at that. And in, in the court jester, there's a space of about one minute, or he does, I think, five or six languages in a row. And it's totally convincing. He had a real gift for it. And remarkably, I think even by today's standards, it's pretty acceptable. There's not much um, demeaning mockery in it, because the joke isn't really about making fun of the way those languages sound. The joke is his virtuosity, you know, how convincing he was. So, that's what I would expect Danny Kay's Swedish chef's uncle would be doing. But no, just as you say, he's he's not doing that at all, except a little bit at the beginning. This is kind of the old Dutchman character that Kay played often and in other places, uh, usually to much better effect. But uh, this sketch is sort of the ultimate lost opportunity in this um, episode that's full of them. Alas, and instead we get this. Have this evening an international cooking festival and we will prepare something which my nephew the Swedish chef will, yeah. will, will talk to you in just yeah. one minute yeah. I, yeah. yeah that's his name first but we call him Tom <laughs> Tom yeah so there's a turkey uh, which the Swedish chef, whose name is Tom, is going to prepare. There's a live turkey, I should say. <laughs> We're going to prepare it by killing it. There's a blunderbuss. <laughs> he tries shooting it once, and a bunch of feathers rain down, and then Danny Kay, as the uncle, shoots it, and it uh, falls down as a fully prepared turkey, ready to eat. They murder that turkey right on stage. So two things strike me about this. One is that 
as I mentioned during the bio, Danny Kaye was actually a quite accomplished chef in real life uh, and particularly specialized in Chinese food. So the fact that he talks about sort of international cooking here uh, is is probably not an accident. I think it's a wink to those who know that aspect of him. Uh, also, this is probably the most coherent we ever hear the Swedish chef. Like he says a lot of things just like straight up in English in the sketch. And <laughs> I yeah. couldn't figure out if it was written to be that way or if that was Jim getting annoyed with the way that Danny was handling the sketch and trying to like steer it back in the direction of the script. Uh, the fact that I couldn't really tell is probably not a good thing. How improvised do you think this was? I mean, I think it was scripted. It just felt like maybe Danny was not sticking exactly to uh, the way it was supposed to be in the script. And, and that was frustrating for Jim and Frank. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe that's just for whatever reason they decided that for this sketch, it would make more sense if they let the Swedish chef actually say some words. There's a bag full of fruits and vegetables up here. Hmm. Pretend Statler and Waldorf were thinking of throwing a party. Well, this much food won't go very far. Well, they only wanted to throw it as far as the stage. Oh, for sure. One last bit of trivia from our friends at Muppet Wiki. Uh, in the UK, this episode aired on Christmas Day, 1979. And so in that version, there was an alternate ending during the closing theme. Instead of the tag with Statler and Waldorf outside the theater in the alley, they were seen back in their box, which was decorated for the holiday. And they were joined by Kermit, Piggy, Robin, and Gonzo. There you go, Noah. Fozzie and Rolf, uh, as they all sang a chorus of We Wish You a Merry Christmas. A very short chorus, but... Oh, well. I looked. I could not find. Yeah, no, same. It is one of those things. Like, Did the Muppets sing that song on a special or something? Though I have such a vivid memory of the Muppets doing We Wish You a Merry Christmas. It's on the John Denver Uh, Muppets album, I believe. And in Muppet Family Christmas, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah. One, One bit of nitpicky pedantry. At the very end of the episode, Danny Kaye says, I'll be right back, Scooter. I'm just going outside to feed the meter, and I'll be back in a few minutes. While the show is still going on, mind you. <laughs> but he just goes outside, talks to Statler and Waldorf for a minute, and goes back in. So I guess his car got towed. Well, good. He deserves it. Noah, before we go, we usually ask our guests if there's anything that they would like to plug or uh, share about other things they're doing that they'd like people to check out. Uh, well, thank you. I am just coming off a big project, so I have nothing on the horizon to plug. But in the last three years of this pandemic reality we've been living in, the Fredonia Marxonia Marx Brothers Festival up at the SUNY Fredonia campus in Fredonia, New York, has asked me to produce these streaming documentary-like illustrated lectures about various aspects of the Marx Brothers life and times. And you can find all three of them for free on my website. They're on YouTube. And the one that just wrapped up a little over a month ago is called If You Get Near a Song, Play It, The Marx Brothers in Music. And it's mostly a series of performances of some of the noteworthy and also some of the obscure songs that the Marx Brothers have been connected with in their career, uh, joined together by documentary segments and uh, lots of surprises and guests and things. And that's at noahdiamond.com right now. And uh, it bears my soul. And you can, uh, that's the most recent example of what I've been up to. And it's, uh, I think, of particular interest to people who like this podcast, because it's a, a similar vein. 
Yeah, lots of material about Tin Pan Alley songwriters and musical theater. And the Marx Brothers were really present at the birth of the American musical in many ways. There was something thrilling about being in the show tonight. Yep, not having to watch it. Thanks for listening to this episode of Muppet Group. Join us in two weeks for a discussion about the Spike Milligan episode of The Muppet Show. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, if all three of those things still exist, at Muppeturgy or on the web at Muppeturgy.com. Our theme music was composed and performed by Christy Bauer. Our show logo was created by Todd Ryan Backus. This episode was edited by David Because the trumpet goes straight back, which is not what would happen if you were actually swallowing a trumpet. I mean, it's gonzo. So, I- what, what, what would happen if you were swallowing a trumpet, Adam? <laughs>